This is a humble man recording. Scano, Sego, Ani, you're listening to the Red Road Podcast with Courtney Sky and Hayden King. Oh, so I was in Rama. We're only recording. One of my favorite places. We're only recording once this week because I was on a work trip to Rama, and I went. We were at the casino, staying at the casino, and I got breakfast. And I'm wildly lactose intolerant, as I'm sure a lot of Indigenous <laughs> people are. Just get destroyed by milk and cream and various other milk products. So I was at Rama, and we were having breakfast, and I asked them what their milk alternatives were, and the waitress said, "We have milk." skim or chocolate (laughs) (laughs) that seems odd for an indian casino yeah right because we're lactose intolerant people but you know what i i recently learned this i think it's assumption that everybody makes when they walk into casino ram and they see this the world's largest dream catcher on the roof and (laughs) the seven grandfather teachings on the back of the turtle shell at the Mm -hmm. entrance and that it's actually run by the the Chippewa's Rama, but mm-hmm. it's not. It's they have a very small st- stake and a very very little input in actually the management of the casino. And you go and you hang out, and and people at Rama will chirp the casino all day long. Mm-hmm. I definitely enjoyed the pool, though. You didn't enjoy the slots. No, I didn't. I did not gamble. Gambling is against my religion. <laughs> Astrology. <laughs> <laughs> I love go- I love going to I love going to Casino Rama. I don't gamble. Uh, well, I mean, I gamble, but I don't gamble when I go to Casino Rama. It's because it's just a it's just like a social club. You go and you run into so many people. You're the guy, you know, the guy who married you, your cousin, your uncle. Oh, it's, yeah. it's always a good time. Um, no, I went swimming. We were only there for one night. We got there, went swimming, went for dinner. I came back, annoyed people on Twitter, DMs, so that I wouldn't go gamble, watched an episode of Breaking Bad, and then went to sleep. Low-key. Mm-hmm. Did lots of work, though. Oh, yeah, I did a ton of work, um, you know, for the resistance. <laughs> Got to try out my new Little Mermaid bikini. Very excited about that. That wait, would be making a repeat appearance. Like an aerial bikini? Like purple clamshell top green glitter scale bottom. Wow. Does it have a tail? No, it doesn't, but it has bows on the side. Interesting. Yeah, so that's what I was wearing. And my um, boss, who has known me my entire life, like she's known me since I was a baby, and was did, did not believe me. She thought I was going to have like a, a plain bathing suit with like a little shell on it. No, full on bright purple glitter. And it was funny because she knew my auntie, my dad's family, and she was just like screaming laughing because my auntie loved her leopard print and loved her like big bold patterns. And she was just like, yep, that's who your family is. Like, of course you would have this, uh, be rocking the most ridiculous outfits. It's in your blood. (laughs) It's like, yeah. Who's hanging out at the pool? Um... Just a bunch of settlers and my boss and I. Nice. Everyone else was at the casino. So, we're going up again in two weeks. I was debating on going camping before our 
meeting, like we're there for a couple of days. I was gonna go up the weekend before and stay there. And mm. you got to get to the Black you. River Wilderness Campground at Rama. So there's this this campground. I camped there nearly every summer when I was a kid on the reserve. Uh, then they shut it down for about eight years to let the hand the land sort of regenerate and heal. Then they recently opened it back up, just this year, maybe last year, and they put teepees in yes. on the campsite. Yes. So not only teepees, I mean there's yurts and like little yes. little cabins if you want and nope. RV sites. But I'm doing the teepee. You can go and stay in a teepee at Rama First did, Nation. You did the teepee. I did the teepee recently. Yeah. I, How was it? Would you recommend it? Uh, we, the only reason I did it was because my whole family was going and then uh, I joined late and the only sites available were these teepee sites and I had a lot of apprehension, you know, it was like, ah, do I really want to stay in a teepee? Is this like cultural appropriation, Nishnabek cultural appropriation of Cree Blackfoot culture? That is your brand. And then what? That is a Nishnabek culture, uh, if anything, no, it's appropriating. I think it's the opposite, actually. <laughs> we. We colonize other indigenous. Actually, no, I'm not going to say that. We <laughs> we we have the uh, hegemony, I believe. The the Anishinaabeg hegemony rules the pan indigeneity. Hmm. Um, I will agree with that. What was was this cultural appropriation? Is this should Rama be doing this? You know, we didn't live in teepees. And then what about all the white tourist families, probably Germans, that are in the teepee next to you? So I was very apprehensive, but we did it and it was such a fun thing for my kids and um, yeah it was it was great so i highly recommend the tp at uh, black river wilderness camping if you decide to go camping at black river and that's uh two sponsors we've picked up <laughs> yeah so this far. podcast is not sponsored if you would like to sponsor this podcast casino ram or black river wilderness camping yes there's a lot of pressure we're putting on one First Nation. We should start mentioning other First Nations. Tourist draws at Six Nations. So Six Nations, fun fact, I used to be a tour docent at the <laughs> Chiefswood National Historic Site. Do you have a list somewhere of all the wild and crazy jobs you've It's had? called a resume. I do have one, yes. <laughs> every job Go that on. I've had every job that I've had. So yeah, so when you are a young millennial there have been all these investments into youth summer jobs. So you get to do a lot of like different summer jobs, right? And so one of the ones that I did from the time I was like 17, probably about 17, 18, 19, I did it three years, yeah. I worked at Chiswood National Historic Site and I would give guides of Pauline Johnson's historic home and walk settlers through uh, an Italianate house, which is only the last Italianate house 16th century house in Canada and wait, it's wait, on what is that? An Italianate it's house? It's a style of house decor. This is an ac architectural style. Yes, I've never heard of it. Style. Is it Italian? Uh, I guess so. Italianate? I don't, I don't remember much of it. I was a very bad tour guide. They were paying a 17 year old native girl <laughs> to dress up in period clothes and talk about oh, an old house man. to an average of two people a week. Like this, <laughs> indigenous historic sites are not well 
uh, attended, except for people that come from overseas and right. actually want right. to like experience authentic India culture. And so they would see our brochure, which had like E. Pauline Johnson in her buckskin, and they would come to her childhood home expecting it to be like this native village, only her dad was a bougie chief, and <laughs> it's this beautiful home mansion on the riverbanks of the Grand River. Right, right, right. So, so you're just sweating in your buckskin, disappointing all these. They had European air conditioning. Are you okay. kidding? Right. The house was air conditioned. So it's. Um, Pauline Paul- Johnson had yeah. air conditioning. Well, her home now does. Charlotte, her older sister Charlotte is the one who actually cared about the home and the reserve. Pauline kind of fucked off to BC. Uh, Died of cancer at a very young age. Very tragic. And then uh, Duncan Uh, Campbell Scott plagiarized her poetry. Yes. So I would welcome people to the historic site and it was always um, this is like that passive aggressive shade and shaming of our indigenous listeners. Like if you have not been to Pauline Johnson's house or any of the local indigenous um, kind of museums and stuff, like, say, the Seneca Village in Scarborough, (laughs) (laughs) you should be doing that because it's only occupied by settlers. And I used to give... (laughs) I gave this tour once to this German family who, like, the dad could, like, speak a little bit of English and spoke the most English, but there was a mom and two girls... And so I'm giving them this tour of this British home in Six Nations, and they're translating it as we're going through it. And they were like, at the end of the tour, like two hours, they were like, um, where are the Indians? (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, oh, I'm native. And they were like... Where's your horse? Yeah, they were like, oh, what? And I was like, yeah. And I'm like, they're like, what are you? And I was like, uh... Mohawk? And they were like, mm, not sure what that is. And I was like, okay, whatever. And I was like, uh, Iroquois? And they were like, ah, Iroquois! And they started hugging me and taking pictures of me and they gave me candy. It was a lot of fun. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That was my one tour <clears throat> that, that week. <laughs> amazing. It's like St. Mar- Marie among the Hurons. Mm-hmm. It's like all my cousins got roped into dressing up in period mm-hmm. clothes to do reenactments in the mm-hmm. grimy, primitive... Indian villages that they had crafted there which I feel like is the norm you know these Indian villages are so it's very difficult to uh, go into the white imagination of what how and what Mm -hmm. we used to live like but um, if you go to Chiswood we had nice fine bone china you got air conditioner Mm -hmm. and the first piano to be brought to Upper Canada (laughs) well if this isn't an endorsement, I, this is a this is our third sponsorship right here. Yeah. Yeah, the the disappointed tourists. Like. One of my favorite parts also of working there was people would come and have these like Indian princess stories of like, oh, you know. Pauline Johnson was my grandmother or things like that right and they would say they would swear up and down that they had like Indian lineage and that Pauline Johnson was one of their ancestors right and people don't know that a lot of people don't know that Pauline Johnson and her siblings none of them had children so the line ended with Pauline Johnson's (laughs) immediate siblings and so anyone that's like 
because you would tell people that and be like, oh, she never had any children. She never got married. And they would be like, oh, well, like, one of her <laughs> siblings. And it's like, nope, they also all didn't have children. <laughs> yeah, just... <laughs> just crushing just, dreams? That's right. Crushing that was the highlight of my job. That's what... I feel like that's what the, we should the, we should be paying these uh, <laughs> tour docents for, these indigenous tour docents, just like... Setting the record straight. Yeah. I also ran a summer camp for Native kids. All the little nerdy kids that, like, wouldn't didn't want to go to the sports camp, they could come to the museum, and we did, like, uh, pinhole photography. <laughs> That's cool. Uh-huh. Can't wait till we have a sponsor that's going to pay for our gas. <laughs> Uh, speaking of which, I've got some money for you here. Oh, you actually planned this out. Uh, this is a no, plan. I, I was I, I went to uh, get some breakfast this morning, and I said I could I got cash in my wallet. I could give oh it to Courtney. Gosh. So yay! I, uh, I'm paying for gas. All right. All right. Beautiful. Thank you. You're welcome. So I owe you for one trip. Yeah. And then this trip, right? Okay. And uh, record for the week or after we get this recording, I'm gonna go take it to my cousin and take him out for dinner and he's gonna upload it while he eats a very nice meal at a nice restaurant. (laughs) Should we give a plug to Eric here? Yeah, so my cousin Eric, cousin. Cousin. Cousin, uh, get you 75 cousins that have various (laughs) skills. That's the true indigenous economy, is relying on your cousins to bail you out of many a situation. And my cousin Eric is uh, definitely my favorite cousin. I, I know there's, I have like 75 first cousins and Eric is my favorite and he has a recording studio called Humble Man Recording and he's a trained audio technician and so he can do uh, live recording in different locations. He also has a sound studio in his basement and he can do all kinds of audio mixing and composing and he's a musician and does all kinds of stuff, does like, goes to powwows and will record live recordings and mix CDs and demos for artists and things like that. And is very generous with our podcast, is doing all of this pro bono at the moment. Yeah. Uh, So we got to work on some way of getting Eric paid. Yes. If you like the sound quality of this podcast or the editing, the sound effects, that was all Eric. So, yes, very generous of him. Also, like, just very typical of me roping him into crazy schemes. And he's used to it. Like, Eric and I spend a lot of time together. And one of the things we do every year is we go Christmas shopping. We do all of our Christmas shopping together. We've done it for about 10 years now since we were both in university and didn't have to rely on our parents for money to buy presents for our family. And he and I have for as long as we've known each other, which is my entire life, he's older than I am, is um, we've only had really one fight, and it was in a parking lot, parking during Christmas, shopping. Because <laughs> he and I have different parking strategies, let's just say that, and um, when he drives, I get dropped off at the front of the, <laughs> the mall, and he parks, and then most of the time I drive. Well, that's a, that's very nice of yeah. But how, how do you not get in fights at, over parking lots at Christmas time? It's just yeah. inevitable. It's inevitable. Yeah. Which is also funny because, like, not only do we do the Christmas shopping, we also do Boxing Day together. 
So we go Boxing Day shopping too, which you is guys, so funny. This is a very interesting dynamic you have. You, yeah. you, you, just, you suffer together. Yes. He makes it, uh, I think that it's because we've learned to suffer together <laughs> in the, the tradition of our family. <laughs> right. It's kind of like us yeah. on the Red Road, mm -hmm. suffering in traffic. Yeah. You are much like Eric in the fact that you have to put up with my driving. <laughs> you're a good driver. Uh, oh, you're thank a very you. good driver. That. Yes. Uh, I feel safe in your uh, vehicles. So. Oh, that's good. Cat like reflexes <laughs> have saved your ass many a time from getting crushed on the highway. Let's check the Google Maps. What is Google Talk? I've, I've tried out Google Maps, mm -hmm. the Apple version iPhone version. Oh, we're in deep red. Um, Waze? And Waze. <clears throat> Would I, it be easier for you if I... Where do you need to get dropped off? Because you're the only one that has, like, commitments at work this morning. Yeah, but it's, uh... I mean, I, I, I have 50 minutes from, mm -hmm. well, from yeah. here, so we should be okay. But. Okay. Uh, deep red along the lakeshore. Um, we're, we're in it. <clears throat> so, the... Sorry, the gardener rather. Mm -hmm. Lakeshore is a bit better, but not really. I think we're probably going to be uh, we're one kilometer away from Toronto, and we'll probably be in this car for another forty-five minutes. Nice. Yeah, <clears throat> two we're kilometers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So each of the I feel I want to use Waze, especially because it gives you the heads up mm -hmm. about the cops. Yeah. Any app that tells you where cops are is an app that I will purchase. <laughs> it's a good app, yeah. It's a good app. I can't figure out the interface. No. I mean, it's simple, but not Um, That's another weird career that I've had, is being a police officer. That's right, you were, a, you were going to police foundations. Yes. I also worked with the OPP. I did ride-alongs with cops for six weeks. Did the shift work and was like a passenger and responding to calls with OBP officers. Now, let me ask you what motivated you to do that because there <clears throat> I had an uncle that went through the police training and mm -hmm. uh, I think he was a very a cop very briefly and then I had like four of my male cousins were all interested in being mm -hmm. cops and I would always try to like chirp them and mm -hmm. discourage them and then they beat you up. <laughs> They're all younger cousins mm -hmm. and no, none of them beat me up. But uh I didn't really understand it, you know, why, why would you go into this line of work, yeah, aside from cops and military and CSIS heavily recruiting us at the powwow, whatever. Yep. Um, so I, very, from a very young age, wanted to be a criminal defense attorney. And I really believe in criminal defense for indigenous people but also as a part of like good governance and democracy that I think it's a really good criminal defense is critical to upholding the standards of law and I wanted to be a criminal defense attorney and represent marginalized people in the court system and one of the ways that you can get into law school easier is to do a program that is joint between like a college and university. I didn't take um, enough academic credits in high school and also because like the way the funding structure works for my band, if you do college first 
and then university. You can get them both paid for, but right. you can't do university then college. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I needed a college program that links to university program uh, to take advantage of like all of the accreditation. So I took police foundations as a program that would get me into an undergrad in law. And then from there, I wanted to go to law school. And so I was oriented to do, I kind of had an idea of me like eventually taking police foundations and I kind of wanted to do it to see like what policing was like, um, understand kind of like the crown perspective when it comes to law and prosecution. So I did that and um, yeah, I just really liked it. I really liked a lot of the police officers that I met. I liked the... I know, shocking. You can't see the look on Hayden's face, but he just, like, gave me the worst side-eye. Um, but, yeah, I got to meet... I got a lot of, like, really good coach officers in the OPP. Um, Monty Coco, who's Algonquin, who's passed on. Um, he died earlier this year. He was one of the formative people in my policing experience, and really at the time this was also like around 9-11 when policing really changed and became more paramilitary I feel like when I was involved in policing it still kind of had these like elements of community policing and I also only saw like the recruiting side of it right so you got to see like the best of policing and what they're actually trying to like project into um, communities and I was also like a young kid who was like in the passenger seat with cops so of course they were changing their behaviors because they were being watched by like a civilian mm. but um i got to meet just like very kind people who were really doing what they could to make people's lives safer and to me there's something very admirable about that especially in like all the ways that like police aren't often given credit or recognition for like just the public safety work that they do and I was also in like a small town right so it's like what's the worst that's happening on small town Dunville on a Saturday night right people are getting drunk in a parking lot there's you know there's not a lot of stuff going on I feel like we just picked up our fourth sponsor yeah, the OPP. The OPP, the RCMP. <laughs> yeah, so I will this is say... This a big shout-out. They're going to use this as recruitment, Courtney. Yeah, so this here's gonna... what changed my mind. Uh-oh. So because I was so young, right, I was like 21 when I was doing police foundations, you can't really get into a police service until you're like 25. They want people to have like life experience, right, which is what I was doing. I was like volunteering and doing all these crazy jobs and doing all this stuff with like the goal of becoming a recruit recruited or doing that and I actually got to the point where like the OPP had committed to pay for my uh, testing so police testing is quite expensive it's around a thousand dollars to get in go through the process to be even eligible to apply and so the OPP committed to paying my testing fees and um, I was in my last year of police foundations and um, my friend went missing and to Sheena General, who is from my community. I was away at school and people were looking for her and they contacted me to know if she was, um, to know where she was, to maybe she had gone, gone missing. It was believed at the time she had run away and that she would, um, so people wanted to know if maybe she had come to see me at this point and she hadn't. And 
the weekend before I wrote my final exams in police foundations, her body was recovered on our reserve and she had been murdered. And I went through the last couple months of my training where like the reality of policing confronted, you know, everything I thought I knew about policing was confronted and juxtaposed against the fact that no one really, like the media never picked up on Tashina being missing. They never really, um, did any kind of like, you know, it wasn't very well known and she wasn't the type of person that often gets dismissed and I really hate to say this but like there's like the idea of like good people or worthy people of being missing right and to me it was very much like Tashina was a smart person she was a funny person she was a great teammate she was a great friend and she was pregnant and it didn't matter that she was a, you know a quote-unquote like worthy or good person right. no one gave a shit that she was missing because she was indigenous right, right, right. and I expected a lot from this field to stand up for people like her and it was really just like a really shocking thing to be like oh all these things I thought were possible in this field actually aren't possible and actually no one really does give a shit about native people especially in policing they never looked for her and it was our res police force that really were the ones who were like aggressively prosecuting it and the justice system I think really failed to Sheena in how they prosecuted and how they investigated um, you know it's been so long now her killer is out he's not in jail anymore and he's back in the community trying to like piece his life back together and well. we still don't have her and I just like that to me was like the biggest frustrating part about it all and it really changed my life right it changed the trajectory right, of right, my life right. I remember when Tashina went missing, mm -hmm. I, I, had, I had just started working at McMaster and I was just starting to get to know folks at Six Nations and basically that was my introduction in a lot of ways to the community, just this heart-smashing devastation. I mean, the elder at McMaster was Norma General, so Tashina's grandmother. Um, so I remember that really well, I, I think about that actually. Uh, often so I can imagine being right there in it as a part of it would uh, impact you in significant ways but that's quite the realization about uh, being a cop or not being a cop mm -hmm. and it was really because I, I feel that too right I feel that there's a lot of really good opportunities for creating change in a very small way in policing you have a lot of a bit like and that's the one thing that I really learned from policing is a lot of compassion for people that are dealing with the legal system and I got to see a lot of police officers treat people who are being criminalized with an immense amount of respect and dignity and so I know it's possible you know what I mean in the ways that a lot of people marginalized people or shy people are disrespected by the system and harmed and brutalized by police I it's frustrating because you see how easy it can be to just mm -hmm. treat people mm -hmm. with fucking a little bit of dignity right. Right. and I feel like that was kind of the whole point around recruiting racialized people too to be police officers is the sense that like you're there on the worst day of people's lives going through some of their worst experiences and you don't do anything to better a person by making it worse for them 
and going out of your way right. to be an asshole about it. So it's what got me into emergency services. Like I didn't become a police officer, but I definitely stayed in emergency services and I was a firefighter on my res for three years and got to do that and got still got to do that sense of service. But like Well it's an it's yeah. it's an interesting perspective mm -hmm. because you know my my experiences with police are the complete opposite. Not even not even seeing the possibility mm -hmm. of of that respect mm -hmm. and dignity. I see the opposite of it. Mm -hmm. I, I my childhood mm -hmm. was punctuated mm -hmm. by these encounters with mm -hmm. the police with my father, you know, my, my father, racialized, uh, uh, Indian man, um, had many encounters with the police, spent a lot of time in jail, um, in a small town outside of the reserve where all the cops knew who he was. I mean, it got to the point when I turned 16 and I was pulled over for the, by the first time for speeding, you know, just a little bit over the speed limit. The cop came up to my window, gave him my license. Hayden King, ah, I know who you are. Um, and that was preceded mm -hmm. by, you know, watching the police interactions with my dad, you know, on the side of the road. Mm -hmm. There's this one, <laughs> I, I don't know how, I, how old I was, maybe 11 years old. We were uh, in a parking lot, in a parking lot. And I think my dad had, had a couple, a couple beer, but he wasn't, you know, drunk or anything uh but the cops came up started to harass them started to harass him uh you know where are you going <clears throat> what are you doing and i and my dad knew that this was going to be trouble so he basically secretly slid his keys into my hand i was standing beside him um and then eventually yeah it escalated and the cops started to like pat my dad down you know where are the keys you know are you driving this car um and I was so sort of overwhelmed with the encounter that I had actually forgotten that my dad had slipped the keys inside of my pocket. Um, and of course, eventually the cop turns to me, you know, where the keys are, do you have the keys? It turns to my little sister, same question, like harassing, you know, this Indian family on the side of the road. Um, but because in my shock, I, I was just, I, I was able to lie so effectively to the cop and, you know, eventually he fucked off and we went back and and uh, eventually later hopped in the car and drove away. But, you know, that's just one of many experiences that I've had with, with um, seeing how police uh, respond to my own father and my own family members. I mean, mm -hmm. my brother, um, it's, uh, it's um, I think, and that's common. I think it's mm -hmm. common. And, you, you know, you talk about Indigenous women, so many family members and of course you know this just their experiences have just been like the cops are a part of the problem they're contributing to the problem it's it's yeah. deep violence that is yeah. perpetuating all of this but i appreciate you know the idea of the possibility you know it doesn't have to be this way yeah i think that also the fact that like the more i come to understand why things are the way they are and the more that i especially is like a young person, right, who, like, from probably, like, my first summer job, like, 16, I was in police cars, to the time I was 21, like, the way that I have come to understand the field is, like, A, the whole system's fucked, <laughs> and, you know what I mean? I'm not trying to defend the system or the way it operates or how it, how police officers act within that. I recognize and completely understand and b undoubtedly believe everyone that has criticisms about policing and it's that's the norm right that's mm -hmm. the rule mm -hmm. and the exception is the experience that i've had yeah
and I try to like with that understanding there I think there's also a, a point too of like having that experience of being an you know an insider to the experience or the policing experience to recognize how they confront their own challenges that they become well aware of you know what I mean because like the way that I experienced it was the fact that the people who are doing you know the good kind of like quality service customer servicey kind of at idea of policing are the people who advance they become leaders they become part of the the leadership of the organization and their career progresses and the people who don't are the assholes that stay on the road and terrorize people mm -hmm. and there's these guys who become career road cops that just go and hate their jobs and hate their life and they just go and like ruin people's day and do terrible things because that they get stuck in this kind of like entry-level position which unfortunately for police means they're the people that have the most exposure to the public right and there's right. kind of a lot of restrictions within the field that keep people like that in those positions so there's the structural yeah. issues but then also mm -hmm. the the, people, uh, issues, the, the right? people issues but i think that the structural issues are really important because you know you mentioned mm -hmm. res cops mm -hmm. earlier and how they actually mm -hmm did do some good work or tried to do some good work in this mm -hmm. in this particular case and mm -hmm. I think so many people think that the solution to over incarceration and police brutality and um, the the suite of issues that we have with cops as indigenous peoples is just making the cops indigenous so so like res cops and creating these agreements where you have reserve based police and basically in Ontario at least most reserves uh, have police forces right it's Anishinaabeaski nation in the north and uh, the Anishinaabek nation and through central Ontario and got six nations cops of course uh, but I don't really you know know if that solves the issue like in my own community the cops do not have a good reputation um, and I think that that's sort of common, you know, that they don't respond to calls, they don't, uh, they don't actually address issues of violence when it does occur. Um, they actually perpetuate a lot of violence. And so that's part of the structural issue. You know, as long as we have this policing system in place, it doesn't matter if you put brown faces in uniforms, they're still gonna perpetuate this sort of carceral approach to the relationship. I think it's also interesting, and that's what it really ignited my like interest in policy and public policy was the fact that like these structures that are put in place, like people get put into them and they change, right? The structure of the organization of the system changes people from what they thought they could achieve going in and their life experience, whatever, it becomes tr changed over time. And I think that is really clear became clear in policing right because you, you do have these cultures and the element of culture that's held within an organization and how that gets transmitted through generations of employees right and people don't really know why they do some things right it's, it's the same with firefighting right there's a huge culture of brotherhood and what does brotherhood mean when it comes to these predominantly male dominated professions and how does toxic masculinity fuel organizational culture? And how does positive masculinity as well, like how does that change how the organization operates and functions within it? So I think that some of those system questions have always been 
I got a chance to experience it by having these like immersive work experiences very young mm -hmm. and it's been really interesting. I think policing is probably ex the exception, mm -hmm. but you might as well be talking about any other institution mm -hmm. in Canada, you know, when it comes to us in particular as Mohawk or Ojibwe, Badawadami, people going into these institutions mm -hmm. and being transformed by those institutions, mm -hmm. right? When yeah. when we go and work in government, do how much do we unconsciously, implicitly, explicitly adopt this sort of culture of that institution and then replicate it? Or academia, right? Mm -hmm. How how much have I been trained to think and teach and um, act in ways that the academy wants, and how much? Do I push back against that and reassert some sort of indigeneity and transform the institution? I mean, this is this this conversation is just far too heavy to have <laughs> uh, on the red road <laughs> on, right now. On our podcast, <laughs> I mean, it's an important it's an important conversation to have. But we are stuck on the lakeshore right now, which I think is also fueling the length of this, like <laughs> the depth of our ability to like dig into questions like this, because we are. It fills you with a sense of angst to be stuck yeah, and moving this it's true. slow it's true. on a road where you're normally flying. That you're like, oh man, the world is terrible. It's yeah, a horrible place. We, usually, we usually save our deep conversations <laughs> for the afternoon drive when yeah. we're completely exhausted and fatigued and cynical. Mm -hmm. uh, we're supposed to be upbeat and yeah, like happy the morning for is them. supposed to be yeah uh, more jokey, more jokes, more jokes. Oh god. You've been listening to the Red Road Podcast, created by Courtney Sky and Hayden King, sound and audio editing by Humble Man Recording. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, Google Play, SoundCloud, and iTunes. It's a great song.